Today's March 13, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. I'm Selma Karashi. This week we sat down with Linda Overstreet Wadish, who is an assistant professor at the University of Alabama School of Medicine at Birmingham. Linda is a synaptic physiologist by training who's found herself elbowing up with the developmental neurobiologists who dominate the study of adult neurogenesis. While it's still relatively newish, the adult neurogenesis field has really taken off considering how fractious some of the debate about it has been in the past. Linda took us through some of the history of the field, current trends, and her interest in the network dynamics of newly born neurons in the hippocampus. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. It's Pi Day today. Uh, On our panel today, we've got Charlie Wilson. That's me. Pi Day. Pi. It's like three. Oh, that is so geeky. (laughs) Well, it's a geeky podcast. This is what we do. It is Pi Day. It's Pi Day. 314. I thought that meant we were going to have Pi. Well, I mean, that would be that would be preferable for me, but yeah, we, it is uh, it's officially Pi Day. So, Todd Troyer, hello, Carlos Palladini. Hi, I'm high on NyQuil right now, so I just want to uh, get that as <laughs> We're all a high on something. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> With Fidel Santa Maria. Uh, I just told my Pi Day introduction. <laughs> and Rama Retno. Hi, Zama. Thanks, everyone, for being here. So, Linda, I wanted to ask you first and foremost, so you work on adult neurogenesis as a general topic, and um, I kind of wanted to ask you, why has the idea of adult neurogenesis been so controversial? I think it's been controversial because for a long time, it was believed that the adult brain had lo- uh, loses its ability to generate new neurons, and this has a, a long um uh, a long history. It actually goes back to Cajal, um, who, who really... Um, identified all the different types of neurons in the in the brain, um, made you know these beautiful drawings of, of different types of neurons, and also in the developing brain. And he noticed that there was an absence of something called mitotic figures, so so the anatomical um, identification of dividing cells in, in the adult brain. And so since that time, um, it's been generally thought that there there was no uh, neurogenesis going on. Uh, there were a few uh, in the literature, a few mentions of mitotic. Uh, figures like in the dentate gyrus, uh, but um, it was it was recognized that at the time there was no uh, methodological uh, ability to to really discriminate between um, neurons and glia, and mm-hmm. so it was thought it was just assumed that those were uh, glial cells or astrocytes and not neurons. When did the dogma shift? Was it was it a technology driven paradigm shift and? Um because it seems now like the pendulum swung completely the other way. Right, yeah, I think there were um, um, several changes. One was uh, methods that uh, were able to identify um, dividing cells, um, not just by their appearance, but by the incorporation of uh, uridine analogs, so, um, so or thymidine analogs, actually. It was tritiated thymidine. Um, that was used in the 50s and 60s. Um, let's see, then there was a, an improvement on that technique called bromodeoxyuridine, and this actually allowed people to identify cells that were dividing by the incorporation of these of these analogs. And then um, also with BRDU, uh, they could also identify the type of cell with um, phenotypic markers using immunohistochemistry. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a methodological advancement. And I, also, I think the work of um, Nadelbaum uh, looking at, at birdsong, so, so there's a, um, just a, a large body of literature, I think in the 70s, um, which, which demonstrated that in birds, uh, there's 
a seasonal uh, learning of songs that is associated with uh, hormonal uh, testosterone control of neurogenesis. And I think that sort of paved the way for, um, you know, just allowing people to think that maybe this could also happen in, in the mammalian brain. So, um, Ms. Carlos here. Um, I, I remember the Notabom stuff, and um, I went to a talk of his a while ago, and one of the criticisms that people had of when he did the seasonal changes was that they said that those weren't really neurons, but, but they were actually glia that were kind of enveloping the neurons and uh, he wouldn't be able to tell the difference between those. How, has that been, uh, and I don't know any, anything else beyond that, but has, has there been any development since that? Um, yeah, so I think that uh, using this bromodeoxyuridine technique to identify cells that had divided um, at a certain time period, and then in combination with a marker for a neuron, um, and also uh, the advent of confocal microscopy, where you could uh, see with much more precision whether two markers were in the same cell rather than in neighboring cells, um, that pro you know answered the question that those were in fact neurons. Um, yeah, definitively answered that. Yeah, it's quite interesting. This is uh, to hear uh, Fernando Notabom talk about about this, and because he's he's very Argentinian and he gives one of these talks, so he. It gives quite a, a talk about being lost in the wilderness for a while. So first he had to convince people that these were real, that these were neurons, and then there was a whole thing of, well, that's just birds, right? And so, yeah, it's this weird thing that happens in birds and whatever. And then it was, then it was all, there was only rodents, right? And then it was all, it just happened some weird place in rodents and stuff. I mean, and now it's like, if you get into hippocampus of primates, you know, then it's totally arrived. It's a real part of the brain that people, that actually does something instead of some weird... Yeah, I remember they also would say, oh, it's, that's just the olfactory bulb. Yeah. As if that's yes. not really part of the brain. <laughs> right. So the, the micro and macro environments of adult versus embryonic or early neurogenesis are, are very different. Yes, they seem to be mechanistically really similar. What defines the cutoff between these two phases? Yeah, and that's a little bit um, controversial because you know most people, most researchers that study adult neurogenesis will use rodents that are six to eight weeks old. So they're reproductively mature, but um, maybe in human terms that would you know be around a thirteen or fourteen, um, twelve to fourteen year old. And so you know is that really an adult? Um, you know, may, maybe not. And and what what happens is the the proliferation of these progenitors declines with aging. And so the older you get, the, the fewer uh, newborn neurons um, there are. And so um, so yeah, the, the term uh, adult is I think often used loosely um, to mean an animal that's out of the, the early postnatal period. Rama? Uh, yeah, uh, just a very general question for the non-specialist, if you could sort of enlighten us, or me at least. What is the actual, what is what is the process in a cell that prevents a cell from dividing? How, what, what is, what is it that happens? That's a good question. You, usually there's this idea that once a cell has differentiated, um, that it, uh, it, it stops dividing. I, I mean, the cell cycle, um, the proteins necessary for um, the cell cycle are no longer expressed. I, but so it's arrested in one phase of in one phase of mitosis. Is that it? <coughs> this is an important question it for is. people who study cancer, cancer. Oh, oh. and oh, so yes. there's been an enormous amount of work on the uh, the various transcription factors and everything that control cell division. And so if the 
if the answer was completely known, which it isn't, it would take a blackboard full of stuff to explain it. It's it's a remarkable, complicated question. I, I was thinking that from a from the brain's point of view, and given the importance of the brain, at least to mammalian systems and all higher organisms, you would think there would be an advantage to to having cells that would divide, mm-hmm. right? You see in some parts of the nervous system, for example, the olfactory system or taste buds. But why is it, is there, is there an evolutionary reason why we should not have a brain that has cells that reproduce in order to replace sort of aging, dying cells? Well, I think when you're talking about the brain and information storage, um, theoretically, and, and this is maybe one of the arguments against adult neurogenesis, is that uh, you don't want to be adding novel units of information that are storage you know to a to a, a, a circuit that you know already knows something that you don't you know you don't want to to mess up that that circuit just puts a real load on the homeostatic mechanisms that are right yeah, that's right and and so so there's also um, you know there's a, a lot of modeling of um, what newborn neurons could be doing in um, the adult circuit and uh, there's no I don't think there's any real data on this, but the idea is that if you're continuously adding new excitatory units, there must be homostatic mechanisms within the circuit to, you know, restrain it so that it doesn't get out of control. So backing up a little, so so there are two main zones of um, uh, where these progenitors uh, are born, where neurogenesis happens, the subgranular zone and the subventricular zone, and they have two very distinct Areas that they actually that cells migrate out toward very distinct network properties, um, behavioral ramifications for the animals. Do we understand what properties of the subgranular and the subventricular zones confer the ability of adult neurogenesis to happen? So, for example, why is it that we don't see it happening in in cortex? Why is it not disposed to the same sorts of right. processes? Right. So. Um in the uh, subgranular zone, there are these radioglial cells that are analogous to the radioglial cells in the cortex that generate all neurons um, in the cortex. Um, and after they have undergone their cell division uh, or, or generated neurons, they transform into astrocytes um, or, or some kind of glial cell that, that uh, no longer has the ability to, to um, generate neurons. But in the uh, dentate gyrus, these radioglial cells persist there. Uh, and I don't think it's really understood why that happens, but you still have these radioglial stem cells that um, can undergo asymmetrical divisions to generate progenitors that can further divide and, and differentiate into neurons. Well, can I Fidel. jump in? Okay, the, I, I think that's the idea of uh, near um, generation. Near what? Neurogenesis. Neurogenesis. I'm a modeler. Um, neurogenesis in the brain is quite uh, uh, fascinating, okay, to all the uh, all neuroscientists and to the public in general. But do they matter? I mean, if we kill them all in a in a in a mouse, does the mouse go? Right, that's a great question. I think that's sort of the holy grail of adult neurogenesis is what is the function? You know, why is there this persistent neurogenesis in these two restricted brain regions? And um, for more than, well, I'd say for about 10 years, there's been correlative evidence uh, suggesting that they have a role in normal 
I'm focusing on the hip, on hippocampus here, but on, on hippocampal dependent functions like learning and memory. And so you could do manipulations to the animal, such as exercise or enhanced environment, which um, in, increases the number of the newborn neurons, and that is correlated with improved behaviors uh, or improved performance on hippocampal dependent behaviors. And so, you know, that you know was suggestive that they are important. Um, the problem with those kind of studies is exercise and enriched environments do a lot of things, and it's not specific um, for the, the increasing newborn neurons. Um, now, there uh, just in the last couple of years, there are genetic, uh, very selective uh, ways of, of killing off the newborn cells. Um, and then um, there's a couple of papers that have demonstrated that when you selectively ablate the, the progenitors, for, and so you have no, no newborn neurons for several weeks, uh, then the animals are impaired on a hippocampal-dependent task, so on a, um, a contextual fear conditioning task, mm -hmm. so their um, performance is impaired. But uh, uh, in another task, in a working memory task, animals with no newborn neurons actually have improved f function. So it's a very paradoxical <laughs> wow. result. So I think that nobody understands what, you know, what these neurons are doing. Um, it's pretty clear that you, you would expect that their function is somewhat different than the mature granule cells because their connectivity um, is, is not exactly the same. You know, they, they have more immature intrinsic properties. You know, their, their properties are slightly different than a mature granule cell. But for how long? Do they, do they blend at the end? Or? Right. So, so for about uh, six weeks, six to eight weeks, they have properties that are, are distinctive. And after eight weeks, you can no longer tell. You know, but there's a continual supply of these new cells with these slightly different properties that have uh, a greater magnitude and lower threshold for uh, long-term potentiation. So for plasticity, they, they are, are very plastic. Their, their synapses are very plastic. And they, um, their intrinsic properties just make them more excitable than mature cells. And so those properties persist for about six to eight weeks. So is anybody trying uh, longitudinal behavioral studies over that six to eight weeks and track performances and stuff like that? I mean, try to get correlative data that way? So, well, so, so just the studies I mentioned where they ablate them uh -huh. for six to eight weeks. So there's no cells in, but in what the about the recovery after, after they ablate them? And so, right, so then... Um, the, the time course of the recovery function, right? Then right, then all that's been done is they, um, with these animals, they allowed the, the stem cells to divide again after that, and um, they recovered their function. I know, but did, did, it, did, the, did they track the behavioral time course of the recovery no, of the function? It, they, they did one time point, you know, yeah. like a... Because you can imagine if you, wanted to, if you wanted to figure out what about them being integrated to the circuit right. would matter for function, that would be a nice correlative point, because then you could look right. uh, at various time points after To recovery. see which age of the neuron is the most important. Yeah. There must be some clue in the pattern of their presence in the brain. It's just the most remarkable thing about it to me is that they aren't everywhere, that they're just a few places. And it's started out just being the olfactory bulb and the Dente gyrus. Now there are some hints of some a couple of other places, but it's definitely not everywhere. And so uh, even in the dente gyrus, right? They all become granule cells. Uh, do any of them ever become basket cells, or or never ever? I mean, there are not very many basket cells. So if they were being made in proportion, the number that would become basket cells would be really small, right? Is it possible that some of them are becoming basket cells? 
there's an isolated report of them becoming basket cells, um, but apart from that, but it's kind of like the reciting of Elvis or something. <laughs> that maybe it'll become more and more yeah. uh, you know, common. People start to see Elvis everywhere. Certainly in the olfactory bulb, they never become mitral cells. Right. And, and mitral cells are common cells in the olfactory bulb, so, and they, they become granule cells, is that right? Right, they become granule cells. So granule cells are, uh, oh. So at least there's two different kinds of cells right. there. Mm -hmm. And actually, in, in, in the olfactory system, that fate, whether be, whether it's a granule cell or something called a periglomerular cell, which is basically a granule cell, but it's located around the glomerulus, um, it seems that that fate is decided not by factors um, on its migration, but it's actually determined early on. I see. What, which, which exact cool. type it's going to take. There was this yeah. paper from Larry Katz's lab, right, that the, the, the delivery of this new cells was really precise in the yeah. olfactory bulb, yeah. right? Like, so and those cells have to migrate a long way. So they've been, yes. they were born a Millimeters, long way from where yeah. they end up. Right. And there's a long time. That migration takes right. a long time. So they know that which kind of cell they're going to be from the time they begin that migration. Right. It's predetermined. So yeah, they don't know, of course, mm -hmm. but it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These so, are some smart cells. <laughs> so th just a question. So, I mean, th there seems to me to be, a, to be a methodological problem here in the sense that in order to know that something is actually grown, you kill the animal and find it, right? That's what you do. And you look for certain markers, certain molecular markers. How do you know that you know all the markers and that it's not more widespread than you have thought? That, in other words, the brain is full of cells growing all the time and we just don't know how to see them, right? right. Is it possible? I, right. I mean, so the method of bromodeoxyuridine or triniodiamidine um, has been studied are used extensively for you know more than thirty years now, and I think that um, one of the main caveats about it is actually that you you detect things that you could ascribe to being adult generated cells that in fact are not. Um, so the question, so you don't see very much of this um, bromodeoxyuridine or BRDU labeling or tridiethymidine labeling. Um, and that's not en enough to ascribe, you know, to to uh, determine that it's cells and neuron. Yeah, but you're kind of asking the other question: How do you know that you're detecting everything? Right. Um, is it is this molecule or is this marker necessary so, for all cells? So any cell that is synthesizing DNA, which would be a requirement for right. going through mitosis, um, would would could be labeled with that. Yes. Yeah. It's also possible to detect the stem cells, right? By by markers. some markers for them, and they're also not like So one of the really important uh, pieces of this puzzle and people's thinking a long time ago was uh, you can't take neurons out of the circuit, de-differentiate them, and let them re-enter the cell cycle without completely messing the circuit up, right? You'd be losing cells that, that have an important function in the circuit. They'd be ripped out of there. They'd go through differentiation, de-differentiation. They would they would cycle and give rise to new cells. And people thought, well, that's probably why there is no adult neurogenesis, is because it would mess up the circuit that's already there. And the key to it is to have stem cells that are not neurons in this circuit. They, are, they don't have to go through reverse differentiation. They're stem cells sitting right there, ready to go. And, and they are the source of the new neurons. And so if you can find those stem cells, you know where the new neurons are made. And that's basically, 
been done. Right. And so it's possible to look around and to see, even if you don't see new neurons being made, there's the cell that would make a new neuron if a new neuron was made. And and you can visualize those. Uh, nesting, what, what kind nesting. of molecule is that? Is it um, a... It's a, some kind of filament. It's a, cytoskeletal. Yeah, yeah. I, can I ask a question that is probably really weird? I always have one every podcast. At least. Uh, at least. Do these stem cells receive some kind of uh, activity from neurons? I mean, if they are going to be predetermined to do something, I mean, one possibility is that they actually have some kind of synaptic activity. That's, That's a great question, yeah. Um, well, presumably because there is a lot of activity-dependent regulation of proliferation. You know, somehow, activity, network activity, has to be translated you know, to these progenitors. Um, so, right, at, at currently, uh, nobody has been able to identify any kind of synaptic input to the radioglial stem cell. Okay, but people have identified GABAergic input to later stages of progenitors. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so they're immediately contacted. I mean, yes, after they, they generate, they're have, immediately contacted. They have in, I mean, potentially. On them. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. And, and in fact, it's these progenitors, so it's not the stem cell themselves, but a, but a more uh, restricted progenitor that can just divide a few times, maybe. Um, but those are the ones that seem to respond to activity. Mm -hmm. um, so their proliferation is enhanced by you know, things like exercise or seizure activity. Yeah. Uh, just sort of, a, sort of bringing this back to a slightly more personal uh, level, you, as an electrophysiologist entering this field, what used to be a bastion of sort of developmental neurobiologists, how does your background illuminate, or how do you think electrophysiology can illuminate sort of questions in neurogenesis and uh, address functions of, I don't know, changing function as cells? I don't know. How would you describe that? Yeah, I think that um, my background makes me address questions definitely from a different um, from a different perspective and. I, you know, I, I have I like to focus on you know how the network is interacting with the cell, and I'm I'm really interested in the opposite question is how the newborn cell is affecting activity within the network. So it's more looking at how these cells are are interacting with with their surrounding cells, which you know is um, something that electrophysiology is very useful for. Yeah. So I actually did want to talk directly about some of your. Result. So you found that seizure activity enhances neurogenesis and functional integration of newborn granule cells in the um, circuit. What do we know about the output of these cells? What do we know about what's happening? Can you talk a little bit about some of your some of your work specifically? Um, yeah. So there there really isn't known about the out about the output of the newborn cells um, physiologically. There's um, anatomical descriptions of um, like EM studies showing synapses formed. By the by, the newborn cells onto um, postsynaptic targets, um, but yeah, as far as the physiology of those synapses, we don't know. Um, we know that uh, so seizure activity. Uh, it, well, it really, it's been known for ten years that that increases the proliferation of the progenitor, so you get more newborn cells. Um, it's also been known for a while that also that this very severe seizures disrupt 
the um, migration of the cells, so they actually migrate into regions that they shouldn't, and they have more morphological abnormalities like dendrites. They have basal dendrites that they don't normally um, 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 show. And so um, what, we, what I found was that um, all of these uh, sort of abnormal developments um, that has been seen structurally uh, is also associated with abnormal synaptic input to the cells. And so, so the newborn cells actually participate in the, in the abnormal uh, seizure-induced structural rearrangements that happen in the dentate. Um, and, so, and the seizures, uh, I guess they, they accelerate the rate that the newborn cells um, receive a synaptic input, and so the, the, the newborn neurons are receiving synaptic input earlier than they would normally, um, but also the synaptic input that they're receiving um, comes from uh, neuron or um, it, it are circuits that aren't normally present in, in the normal brain. So they're, um, you know, seizures cause a lot of sprouting and, and um, um, new synapse formation, and, and those newborn neurons are the targets of, of some of those. But also you get cell death, right? I mean, with the seizures. Yeah, so the seizures. It's a very complex stress signal to this right. system, right? Right. And actually a lot of these structural rearrangements are thought to be due to cell death. Right. So some neurons die and you get de-innervation and then their um, right. response to that. But the, but the new cells, under normal circumstances, many of them would undergo cell death. But is uh, so we know that the seizure causes it an increased number of cells. We know that that came from an increase in the creation of new cells. What happens to the cell death under those circumstances? Yeah, and that's another great question that I'm not aware of anybody specifically studying the survival um, after seizures. It looks like maybe survival might have gone up rather than down. Yeah, um, because so many newborn cells persist, right? Yeah. They're not just dying off, right? Um, and, and in fact, in one seizure model, so a kindling model, um, which is probably less severe than these, these pilocarpine um, or canate models, but in a kindling model, there is enhanced survival. So kindling is stimulation somewhere. Where, where is this Usually do preferred path. Or and then that's just done day after day right. until you gradually develop some kind of... Seizures, yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell it induces seizure. Yeah. Is there an idea about you know how that works? What's changing day after day as the kindling thing is going on? Um, well, I know that it's some people have can uh, have likened it to like an LTP type phenomenon where you're just enhancing plasticity um, each time you do it. You're increasing you know, synaptic strength. So you're having some kind of plastic change go on. You keep doing it over and over, and eventually it just triggers. Ah, so uh, it's some kind of, because normally we imagine that networks that have LTP have some kind of uh, synaptic weight normalization mechanism that makes sure that the total amount of synaptic input to a cell doesn't right. rise and rise and rise over time. Right. So the idea is that that mechanism is somehow it's not working anymore. Right, right, by the repeated stimulations, yeah. So, um, I, I have a question. Is there any evidence of neurogenesis after just injury to other parts of the brain? So, um, there's evidence for um, migration of, of, of um, like progenitors or um, neuroblasts into 
different regions that are injured. Um, I think most of those are thought to come from the subventricular zone, you know, and then they migrate into uh -huh. to regions of injury. So any region of injury, or do you know what, what they've injured? I, I only know about striatum. That's uh -huh. the only one. But well, tell us about that. Well, <laughs> that's about all I know about it. <laughs> that people have some evidence. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what happens is you do a BRDU experiment in an injured animal, and you see a lot of BRDU labeling in places that you shouldn't. Um, and it turns out most of those um, are co-labeled with astrocytic markers and not neuronal markers, but there's a very small percentage so do, we, do we know where those come from? I mean, do those come from the stream of migrating cells? I, I think it's thought that they're coming from the, the subventricular uh -huh. cell. Yeah. Although there's reports all the time now, it seems like, of neurogenesis in other brain regions. Right. So so most of these cells will be excitatory, or, or you're right. It's so thought. The ones that are going thought. into the striatum shouldn't be, because there are no excitatory cells in the striatum. Mm -hmm. So a cell that goes in there and is excitatory but maybe is they are for not weeks. going to be. <laughs> Not going to be. A <coughs> hmm. So, in, well, in the dentate, they are all thought to be excitatory, right? But in olfactory bulb granule cells are inhibitory. inhibitory. Yeah, they're all inhibitory. Right. Yeah. So then, is there a method in this madness? I mean, if you make a list of all the cells that are areas where you have sort of regeneration, and make a list of all the channels, I don't know, whatever, dendritic glands, somatic diamond, whatever, is there sort of is there some broad pattern emerging out of this? There's definitely some similarities in the sequence of it, of, um, of the way of the events that happen in like the hippocampus and the olfactory bulb, but um, you know, so so those are the really the two regions where um, you know we know most about what's too, going on, right? yeah. But there's granule definitely cells. Yeah, the granule cells. They're yeah. both granules. They so have granule the same cells, name, right. but you know, but they have different. <laughs> they're so small, but they're small cells. Yeah, but there's definitely difference in the sequence of, of you know, like the development of the cells in those two places that seem to be cell type specific, as if. It, so this is my question about if you look at the two circuits and what they're doing and how experience affects them. Are there any clues that we can get there about what's you know what what the different you know factors at play are that are regulating yeah. things and what the output is? Yeah, know? that's a good question. May I ask a more physiological question? Like, uh, has anybody done like a play cell study of these cells, like in the hippocampus? I mean, and how the granule cells fire? Um, is that too weird? No. That, so no, I think. I mean, that would be like a great experiment, right, to, to get a single unit recording from a newborn neuron while an animal is... Do they have a, a different signature in the dextracellular? I mean, is yeah. there a way to distinguish populations? I think that would be, it would be really difficult because, right. I mean, um, granule cells in general, they don't fire very much. And that's the same. A newborn cell really can only fire a single action potential like in, in response to a, a depolarizing pulse, whereas granule, a mature granule cell can fire a few, but if you're just looking at spontaneous activity, they're only firing, you know, single spikes, and so it would be difficult to distinguish yeah. them. But that would, that, would, that would be interesting. Right. So people have looked at activity-dependent markers like, um, you know, CFOS. So, like, you'll put an animal in an in a environment, and then you can look at how many newborn cells um, were activated. Oh. And there is some evidence that 
a greater fraction of newborn cells, uh, and I think they you, you have to to pick an age of the newborn cell. So like, and I can't remember exactly. They probably used a four to six week old newborn cell. So a greater fraction of newborn cells are activated in that type of experiment than mature cells. So if you look at all the total cells, you get more CFOS, BRDU positive cells than CFOS, NUN positive cells. And that is correlated with the fact that these cells have a lower LTP threshold. Or, or just that they're more excited, they're yeah, easier they're just to more activate, basically. But you can put it in the context of all this, okay. all that yeah, data. Exactly. From exactly. Well, there it seems like a particular place you want to be careful about CFOS being activity, right? Because you know, this is an immediate early gene that has who knows whatever downstream effects, and these are new neurons that you might be particularly sensitive that you might want to turn on something to have them integrate, right? right. So, right. Um, and maybe not that they're more active, but they're more right. plastically active, whatever that means. Right. right? No, that's exactly right. Because so, so the newborn cells actually express some transcription factors just under you know basal conditions, like like the phosphorylated Krebs. You know, they seem to have some. Activity, um, which is often associated with you know, long-term potentiation, but is just also developmentally regulated. Yeah. Well, so what about uh, um, uh, you know people like throwing a lot of molecular things at these new neurons and seeing you know what's different and just like in whatever way they want want you know these new neurons and old neurons what's different? Um, yeah. Well, and I think the retroviral labeling where you can uh, genetically manipulate cells, you know, at the single cell level, you know, and you can knock out any protein of interest that you want to in the newborn cells. I think that's going to um, really give us a lot of information about the molecules that are important for their maturation. So the, the field is huge, and it, I mean, neurogenesis itself, it's, I guess it comprises all these different aspects of proliferation, migration, um, survival, it's this huge field, and it seems pretty inclusive and welcoming. And do, is there a lot of sort of integrative gusto? Do people talk to each other? Is it very? Um... Um, yeah. Well, I think that it is growing, um, and I think that um, something that we haven't talked about is the possibility that altered neurogenesis could be involved in different diseases. I think people are starting to think about that, and so. Um, people who have, have mouse models of uh, various neurological diseases are starting to look at whether or not neurogenesis in effect is, is affected. And, um, and I, so I think that's really bringing in a lot of uh, new people. And the techniques are fairly straightforward as far as um, you know, detection of the numbers of newborn cells. And so um, it's not difficult to you know, do these assays. So um, what's the next wave there? What do you see sort of the next, the final frontier? I, I, well, I think one thing is the ability to, you know, really selectively um, ablate the newborn cells um, to look at, you know, causal um, effects on behavior or disease progression. Um, I think that's going to tell us a lot about what what this uh, what the function of the newborn neurons are doing. It would be a shame for newborn neurons to go bad and to do something. Wrong. But it'd be so much fun. <laughs> Yeah, maybe they go through a rebellion stage. Right? Yeah, right. They become more adult. They suddenly become the granular cells. So socially, what are the motive, what, what is driving research in neurogenesis? I know injury is an obvious one, and I would presume aging is another. Are there any other sort of major sort of influences in the field? Social influences, in some sense. Um, I think 
Uh, yep. So just the drive to understand learning and memory, um, you know, and the hippocampal function. You know, I think there's a lot of interest in, yeah, you know, there's a lot of interest in figuring out with all the different, you know, subfields of the hippocampus um, it is involved in. And, um, and yeah, I think I think that is a, a, actually a very strong driving force. So maybe it goes back to my earlier comment. So maybe it's, is it really taking off now that it's in the hippocampus? Rather than yeah. if it was just an olfactory yeah. bulb, yeah. there wouldn't be a rush yeah. of people yeah. into looking at learning and memory and olfaction. Uh, yeah, I think. No, but do as we get older, I mean, in not where not to approaching really old age, but in the forties and fifties, let's say. But also feel the drama. That's oh, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> Are you getting worried, Raman? Quite. <laughs> no, I'm just wondering. Do we feel a need for new neurons? Is it you know? Is there? I, I'm not sure. I feel I'm happy with what I have. <laughs> you just think you're happy with it. Yeah. It's because you're losing the one. That's what's called the neurons. Yeah. If you had more neurons, you'd realize how many more neurons you need. Yeah. <laughs> you're losing your awareness. Ignorance is bliss, yeah. Robin. If you do a search now of the literature, it's just everywhere. There's mood disorders, yeah. there's stress, exercise, or just a million. I mean, social, anxiety, um, Alzheimer's. I mean, I think that, that's a big, a big yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, everyone. Thanks for being here. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. So does that mean no pie? Uh. <laughs> 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 <laughs>